Hey everybody and welcome to the iFreak Show episode episode number 202. This week on our panel we have Guy. Hello from Brazil. And I'm Andrew Madsen in Salt Lake City. Uh, we have a, a guest today and his name is John Reed. John, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, well, hello from San Jose, California. And uh, i am been doing test-driven development for some time. I've got my blog, qualitycoding.org, where I write about TDD and other testing-related things in iOS land. Yeah, so we've had John on the show, uh, We, I think, two times before, seems like. Uh, just once, I think. Oh, just once. Oh, yeah. I think it was just a good episode. No, it's good to be back. Two, wor- two episodes worth of goodness. Um, so I, I ran into John at TriSwift in Tokyo, and uh, it was nice to meet him and thought it would be fun to get him back on the show. So, so we're going to talk about TDD today, and, and John also sort of mentioned we should talk about why you should not take Apple's sample code literally. So let's let's um, sort of dive in. John, would you give us a brief overview, especially for those listeners that are not familiar with TDD? What is TDD? What does that term mean? Yeah, so test-driven development um, basically involves going around in three steps, what I call the waltz, where uh, you you don't just start coding stuff. The, at any point, you want your production code to be basically required by a test. So the test should fail. And once you do what the test requires, it changes to green. And then the vital third step you then look back at the code on both the production side and the test code side and say, what can I clean up? What can I refactor? Is there anything I should change? And you just do this over and over and over again. What happens is that you're, it's basically doing emergent design. Uh, you, you don't necessarily spell everything out up front. You're going one test at a time, not like uh, you're not writing an entire suite of tests. So you're moving in very small steps and building up both your le- left foot and right foot, your production code and test code in parallel with each other. Have you ever felt like you're falling behind or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in Ruby. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got Ruby Rogues all day? Well, you can, kind of. We moved our Ruby Rogues Parlay forum to Slack. That means you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. That's rubyrogues.com slash P-A-R-L-E-Y. Your left foot and right foot, your production code and test code in parallel with each other. So TDD definitely goes beyond the idea that Oh, you should write unit tests. They're good. It's actually a pro- a specific process for writing both your production code and your tests in tandem. Right, right. And adding unit tests. So a lot of times, with uh, especially around uh, iOS folks, and I think this has changed in the last few years. People seem a little more friendly and. Uh, acknowledging the importance of writing unit tests and are seem to be able to do so. But adding unit tests after the fact is often much harder than doing it in parallel. So, for example, a lot of times what people say is, well, I've got, you know, this uh, massive glob of code, say, for example, a view controller that's doing way too much. Now, how do I write unit tests for that? And oftentimes the answer is, "Mm, maybe not. Like, maybe we should break this apart first. (laughs) So one of the places I think this takes you if you're you're doing TDD to test-driven development is that because you're writing tests in in tandem with uh, 
production code. And, and in fact, I, if, as I understand it, the normal way to do TDD is you actually write a test that you, you start for each test, you start by writing the test, even though you know it will fail because the code in question is not implemented yet. And then you write the code to, to fix that, to, to make the test start passing. Um, I think by doing that, you sort of naturally lead yourself to writing testable code. Because how can you do this if your code is not testable? It's being tested right from the very start. Right, right. And that's part of the struggle is learning how to break your problem down into smaller testable pieces rather than one giant glob. And by doing that, you also get better APIs because you you write how you want to use the code before actually writing the code. Yeah, the tests actually serve as examples. They're, they're, uh, there's the other sort of school of testing that calls them specs, right? Uh, they're specifications. So one, one question I have about this, I've never really done formal test-driven development in a real project that I've written. Uh, I, I've done unit testing, but not in the you know strict TDD process. Uh, but one thing that kind of... I guess worries me is is the word is that it seems to me like um, sometimes doing writing your code this way where you're writing it sort of small bit by small bit in terms of uh, small focus tests one at a time you may end up with an architecture for your production code the API may be good but the internal architecture may sort of be non-ideal when you've finished a round um, so what is what is is, is that a, is that a real problem and what does TDD have to say about that it can be a real problem, and this was a, a source of great debate a few years ago. Uh, uh, DHH posted uh, an article about what he called test-induced uh, damage. <laughs> that wasn't what it was called. Test-induced damage. And his argument was, oh, you know, and basically you're trying to unit test something, and so you're breaking it into this horrendous architecture. I think that there is a danger there in that you can misapply anything. So I don't think that you can just say, well, I've seen TDD go wrong and produce something bad. What may have happened was the TDD went wrong. <laughs> that is, it needs to be informed by good design principles. And this is something I've, I've been learning over the years is that you in order to do TDD well, I've had to become better and better at understanding design, uh, the way code is designed, and especially focusing around the solid principles. I hadn't even heard about, of them until a few years ago. So learning to break things down, learning to pattern, uh, create barriers. Now, a lot of people will look at code that's written that way and say, well, I would never write my iOS code like that. And this sort of gets into the uh, discussion of whether or not we should follow Apple's lead in their examples, is that the code you end up with may not look like typical iOS code sometimes, especially when you're interacting with Apple's frameworks. And is that a bad thing? I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe it is to you. It's not to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, the answer I think, with as with so many things, is it depends. But it's it seems to me again, really, never having done TDD for real, that that one actual advantage of TDD in this in this discussion is that because you have fully covered your code with tests from the very beginning, if you sort of get to the end of of a new feature or whatever it is you're working on, and you think. Well, all the tests are passing. I like my API that I'm, you know, that, that has fallen out of this process. But there are things about the internal architecture that uh, I think they could have been done better. I would have done them differently. You are, um, it, it becomes a lot easier to confidently refactor it. So you might think, okay, now that the whole thing is put together, I, I actually want to change the way this works. You've already got a whole suite of tests covering that. So you can do that quite confidently and refactor and then run your tests and, hey, nothing broke. So my refactor is okay. Well, Absolutely. That, that's pretty dangerous without tests, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, refactoring without 
unit test coverage is the only real good way to do that is to sort of test it somehow. So people tend to fall back on manual testing if they don't have unit tests in place. And that just gets really slow and it hinders the entire refactoring process. Uh, so with well-designed unit tests, they should specify behavior, but not the implementation. And then, you, as you said, you can rip it apart. You can redo things. You can uh, move things around and decide, I want this to be over here instead. Uh, I want to extract a class. For example, this this class is doing too much. Let me pull stuff out. You can do all that. I felt like I was taking all of Guy's chances to talk, so I wanted to give him a chance. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, well, I actually don't have any questions right now. <laughs> okay, well, I, I, I want to get into the, the... Let's talk about why Apple's examples are, are often not not the way you want to do things, particularly with TDD. So, um, I don't know. I, I learned, I learned Coco back in 2005, long before started in 2005, long before there was this huge community and this wealth of, um, people talking about all kinds of different programming practices and bringing things that they knew from other ecosystems, et cetera, et cetera, into the, into the community. And, Back then, obviously, the biggest single source of information about how to write Objective-C and um, write code for the Mac was Apple, and certainly you thought that the way they said to do things was the right way to do things. You didn't really have any other source, and after all, these people have been doing it forever. So um, so I, I think I have a little bit of a natural bias toward that. If I see something in Apple sample code, I think, well, you know, that's probably the way I should do things, all you know, all else being equal. So why, why is that? Why do you think that's not always the case john well sample code is is there to teach you something and in order to grasp the concepts uh you know i need to call x y and z maybe in a particular order sometimes it's easier if x y and z are like right there all and it's all stuck together and it is one big glob it's easier to sort of grasp what is going on and it's important i think to distinguish the medium of sample code as from so teaching what needs to be called versus teaching how to architect things i obviously can't speak to uh the how apple writes things on the inside but a lot of their examples people take them the, the style of the code as gospel rather than figuring out, okay, I need to call XYZ. I'll find my own better way to call XYZ. Does that make sense? Yeah, and also uh, people don't realize that the person who writes the sample code uh, on Apple's part is not actually the person that's writing Apple's apps, like the real apps. There are people that work specifically specifically with sample codes, or they are the writers of the framework. So they're not app writers. They know how to uh, demo their code or the code they have the documentation for, but they don't actually know how to architect something. Yeah. So the most recent example that I blogged about was their article about working with JSON and Swift. And there are some helpful things in there that help, especially help me get started. But the final end result that they show says, you know, you can create a method that makes this query that does serializes the request into something and sends the request and then deserializes the response and and does all the networking and and that's what i've just named about four different things there one of the things that test driven development leads toward 
is a stronger adherence to the single responsibility principle, where a class is responsible for really one thing, ideally, not four things. I struggle with this a little bit uh, as in my role as an instructor teaching people how to do iOS development because I'm teaching brand new beginners who are, you know, struggling with the language itself and struggling to understand even the basic concepts as they start out because that stuff's hard. And it, you often have to teach some concept in a way that's really understandable. And, you know, even though it's not necessarily how you would write the code because you don't want things scattered across 10 files and have to explain the relationships between a bunch of different classes or whatever. Um, but, but it's hard because you teach them that and then, and then you also have to sort of, uh, help them understand that, that they are learning a simplified way and they need to move beyond that and, um, you know, kind of understand your motivation. So, and I think it's a lot the same for somebody writing sample code. Exactly. I think that's why I can't fault Apple for their sample code. It's their good samples of like everything that needs to happen in one place. I just want to tell everybody, great, learn that and then don't stop there. <laughs> learn how to break things apart. And I think we are guilty of writing code like that for samples. I have some repos on GitHub that have that sort of code. And what I've started doing recently is I actually add a disclaimer to the readme, like this is not properly architected, just use this uh, to actually learn the framework or the library, but don't follow the architecture. <laughs> so for somebody listening to this that is is relatively new or, or hasn't thought about this before, um, the, the obvious question is, is like you say, okay, don't use, don't take Apple's sample code to be the best way to do things. Uh, but how am I supposed to know what the right way to do things really is? So, so how do you, how do you learn that? And, and what are some um, tips or advice for somebody that's in that position? The solid principles have become my buddy and of the, the, that's, that's an acronym S O L I D or an initialism. And the S is the, the biggest one of the bunch for me, and that's the single responsibility principle, which says that when, think of it this way, if you're working on a program and the product manager comes in and says, I want this new change, this thing to change, ideally you should, ha you, ideally you should only have to change one section of code to make that happen. In practice, what happens a lot with, with stuff that where we haven't architected it well yet is you discover, oh, I've got to make that change here and I've got to sprinkle in some stuff over there and that percolates over here and it just spreads through the whole system. And it would be better to isolate things so that the changes are not how to put it? They're not so entangled. Uh, it's like, you know, spaghetti code, except we're dealing with objects and messages. Uh, we don't want stuff scattered throughout the universe. We want things in small, discrete chunks that do one thing and are cooperating with each other. I think we should just go through what the, what the, what each thing in the solid principles are. So S is the single responsibility principle, which you've just been talking about. Uh, class should only have a single responsibility. Yeah. Um, so O is the open closed principle, which says that you should be able to extend something without changing the thing underneath. That is, it's, it's open for extension, but closed for modification. A lot of times I think people misunderstand this to say, well, that's talking about um, class inheritance and we don't, we want to stay away from inheritance. And no, that's not the only application of it. Uh, for example, callbacks are a way or, or inserting, you know, closures is a way of following the open close principle where the underlying thing that receives the callback can 
then call all sorts of stuff without being changed. That's how we live and breathe in iOS is that Apple has architected things from the API perspective really, really solidly. And so we can call stuff without reaching in and trying to change and hopefully not swizzle things out underneath in order to satisfy our needs. So, oh, open, closed principle. I think, um, I, I think any- even uh, you, the closures are a really good example of that. But another good example is the, the, the delegate pattern. Because yeah, yeah. at its best, a delegate uh, allows customization of one class without modifying that class, without subclassing it or having any access to the code at all. But you can still change um, what what it does, how it does its job through a really well-defined contract, a really well-defined API. Yeah. And with all these principles, you discover them when you don't follow them. That's really when you learn about them. So when you find, oh, in order to do this thing, I need to reach into this class and make things in the underlying sort of class or whatever it is, then you're discovering that you that code hasn't followed the open-closed principle and you try to then reshape it. This episode is sponsored by Rails Remote Conf. Rails Remote Conf is a two-day completely virtual conference. So if travel expenses are an issue or you just can't afford to be away from home for two days, then join us. The conference is focused on people who want to keep up with the latest in Rails, such as databases, front-end frameworks, or Rails 5.1 and all the new stuff that came out with that. We'll have speakers from all over the Rails community to help you stay current in a Slack room so that you can connect with speakers and attendees in real time. Plus, I'll be there since I'm the MC. It also includes a live roundtable video chat for attendees and speakers, plus we'll provide the talk recordings to you within days of the conference. Early bird tickets are available for $150 until May 27th, and the call for proposals is open until May 13th. So come join us at railsremoteconf.com. So, uh, so single responsibility principle, O is open-closed principle. What is L? L is the Liskov substitution principle, where this one I'm, I haven't like had that much trouble with, so I, I can't speak so much to the pain around it. But you might have experienced the pain if you have uh, a class hierarchy where the things in the subclasses don't honor everything that the superclass promises. That's the, that's the big no-no with the, with the Liskov substitution principle, is that any uh, subtypes should be uh, completely replaceable as far as what the contract of the code is. So in other words... Um Passing a subclass, for example, passing a subclass of some um, class, an instance of a subclass of some class to a to a a, a method or a function that expects the the parent class should not cause that function to break or you know do something that it didn't mean to do. Or maybe another way to look at it, uh, with respect to delegates, for example, is to say, well, we've got all these delegate methods that I'm providing, but hey, I'm not really going to do this particular one. Then you're breaking the contract. You know, you, you, you have to probably provide it, uh, but maybe you're not actually doing what it promises to do. And at some point that gets hard for something like a compiler to check. So this is something you really have to be conscious of when you're programming, it seems like. Yeah, contracts go beyond just honoring types. It's really about semantics. So maybe L is like honor the contract. (laughs) Sounds good to me. Uh, What about I? I is the interface segregation principle. And for me... There are probably different ways to look at this one, but for me, this means that you shouldn't have to take on stuff that you don't care about. Uh, in order to provide a particular interface, for ex- I ah, let's see, let me 
try to get a better example. I think uh, the way I tend to lean on the interface segregation principle is by using protocols more often where instead of providing the entire interface to a class, I say, well, you don't really need to know all that stuff. You just need this, these few pieces, and this is all I'm going to provide to you. An example of that is when people complain about exposing outlets in tests and say, well, I don't want my outlets to be public. Well, they're part of the interface of the entire class. That's fine. A a class can have different facets to it. Uh, For example, you can have the uh, sort of the hidden controls for uh, for injecting outlets and whatnot. But most of the time, you don't want to expose that to the other classes that are calling your class. So instead, that's where you can say, well, I'm not going to give you the whole thing. I'm going to give you this protocol that's a subset of what I do. Seems like Swift makes that um, pretty natural with its focus on protocols and even being able to use protocols as first class, you know, as types. Yeah. That's one of the things I really like about Swift. So the, so what? Oh, go go ahead, go ahead, Guy. Sorry, I, I had a related question. How's uh, what's your take on protocol extensions? Do you think they should be used? They should be avoided? I love them. <laughs> uh, where have you run into situations where they are, cause confusion or or trouble? Not really. I've been reading some discussions online about the usage of protocol extensions and. I love them, but I, I see some people criticizing the use of them, but I never seen any issues with them. Of course, everything can be overused or abused, but I have a great experience with protocol extensions. Yeah, I think protocol extensions fit nicely into uh, interface segregation. So then the next the next one the D what is the D D is a dependency inversion the dependency inversion principle not to be confused with dependency injection they're somewhat related but they're not the same thing uh, dependency inversion usually s- involves if you draw, draw if you draw a block diagram of your classes and how they're talking to each other and especially with regards to inheritance where you can say the not just inheritance where you can say this depends a depends on b and you want to find a way to reverse that arrow where b depends instead on a a lot of that involves extracting again a protocol and saying i'm don't need to provide this whole thing. I'm just going to speak through essentially this little hole that I've defined this contract. And specifically, dependency inversion says that we should try to depend upon not concrete instances as much as abstractions. Really, we keep talking about protocols, and I think it makes sense to to keep talking about protocols, where if we depend upon a protocol things become much more flexible than if we depend upon a concrete instance. So, it opens up dependency injection, but that's not the whole story. So I I have, when I read these, um, SO and L all make sense. I and D sort of make sense alone, but I, I have a hard time looking at them together. In, interface segregation saying you should have it's better to have many client-specific interfaces than one general-purpose interface. And actually, the first place my mind went is a is a pattern I've used before, um, where you have sort of a, an abstract superclass and then a bunch of concrete subclasses. And the abstract superclass sort of has a, a generic interface, but then the subclasses may implement that functionality in different ways. This, of course, is in Objective-C, where protocols were not quite so nice. Um, so, so that's sort of saying you should have you should have these specific interfaces and then dependency inversion says, oh, you should actually depend on abstractions, not con- concretions. And it's a little hard for me to wrap my head around how these are are uh, 
complementary, not contradictory. Well, so if you depend upon a protocol, then anything that satisfies that protocol uh, that honors the contract, which again comes back in a way to Liskov, is is cool, right? Anything that you can plug in is is good. And I think that with a way to picture solid as one unit is that we're dealing with pluggable architecture, pluggable components. It's Lego blocks instead of uh, giant uh, entrail spaghetti code where you should be able to pluck something out and plug in something else that honors the contract but maybe behaves somewhat differently. So these solid principles came from Uncle Bob, uh, Robert C. Martin, who's pretty well known in the programming world. And I looked up the Wikipedia article for interface segregation principle and he and it, it talks about how how he came up with this, and it was uh, it was pretty useful to me to read, um, worth looking up if you're trying to understand it better. But basically, he was working on something for Xerox, and they had a you know a big big all-in-one sort of copier printer kind of thing that had that could do printing and stapling and, and whatever else. And they had basically one big job class that was for everything. It had methods for printing and methods for stapling and methods for whatever, and but if, if you were going to create one specific job, maybe it was just to staple some paper, but the code that dealt with running that staple job had to know about all of the print methods too, even though it wasn't using them. So it made a lot more sense to factor things out. And in Swift, we might factor things out into a you know staple protocol, but it's just the methods related to stapling and a separate print protocol, which is just the rep- methods related to printing and maybe the job class still implements all of those but calling code doesn't need to know that it just needs to know hey here's this thing that can do the stapling for you basically right it keeps us sane it keeps me saner and then it also doesn't need and so that's interface segregation because you've got stapling and printing separated but it 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 also works with dependency inversion because the the calling code is only depending on those protocols it doesn't need to know how the protocol is implemented that you know that it's implemented by this big job class that also implements printing if you know who cares right it's only it only needs to know about and use the the stapling methods one place where this comes into play is when you try to reuse code and you say oh, well i need to pull in this particular thing that i need but it depends on this other component that i actually don't care about and that pulls in other stuff and that pulls in other stuff and eventually you just like you've copied the entire uh, uh, object tree over that's a a horrible situation to be in and I've found it very helpful to apply these principles to try to snip things apart and reverse the arrows and say okay I'm it it's going to provide uh, just the interface that I want (laughs) and I really don't care about anything else I think the main benefit of using this principle and TDD also is when you have to change your code or refactor. You can do that a lot more easily and you you know that things are not breaking because you have the tests and if you follow solid you don't have to change a bunch of things unrelated to the actual refactoring. For me, refactoring is like the secret sauce of TDD. It's what you get in the process of doing TDD, and it's what it enables after you're done with the first round of code and everything is under test. And the code has to keep changing. It has to keep evolving. And if the code is resistant to change, that is, if if I'm scared to touch it, then it's basically preventing me from being agile in any way. A lot of times people focus on agility as a bunch of process uh, things to follow, like stand-up meeting and whatnot, whatnot. But for me, 
the root of uh, a lot of agility comes from technical practices and especially from refactoring, the ability to refactor and change the code and say, this no longer belongs over here. It needs to move over there. But I need to be able to make those changes quickly and without fear. And that's where a solid set of unit tests come in. Having worked on code that's well covered by unit tests and code that's not well covered by unit tests, it, it, there there is definitely just just emotionally, psychologically, there's something that's really reassuring and makes it easier to do your job when you've got a bunch of unit tests and can run them and say, oh, you know, as long as long as these tests are good and test with what needs to be tested and are cover you know cover thoroughly, then I can run them and hey, what I just did did not break things. I'm, not about to ship a huge bug to my users. And you don't have to go through the entire app and test every feature to make sure. Yep, which is not to say that there's uh, that you shouldn't also be doing manual testing. I think that's important even when you're well covered by unit tests, um, partly for things that are hard to cover with unit tests like UI stuff. but. Uh, Having unit tests there from the beginning is it makes life a lot uh, nicer when you're making big changes. Yeah, it shortens the cycles. So you still need to do some basic manual testing, but you should be able to do it much less often. My unit tests are running, when I'm doing TDD, they're running all the time. Like uh, I, I'm jealous of folks that have uh, systems where they can make a change to a file and it automatically then runs the test. I wish we had something like that. Maybe an Xcode 9. Cross your fingers. Nah. <laughs> I, I, I'm completely kidding. I don't... <laughs> but only on the new Mac Pro. Yeah, only on the new <laughs> Mac Pro. Cha-ching. They got to get us to buy it somehow. Well, I, so we are all iOS developers, and, and the people listening to this podcast are too, and, and I wonder uh, if there are any things that are sort of specific to iOS development or, or specific to Swift that make um, TDD, that, that, are, that are, you know, good to think about when you're doing TDD. Are there things that are sort of unique to Swift and iOS uh, with regard to doing TDD? Hard things, or, you know, maybe things that Swift actually makes easier when you're doing TDD? Well, now we come back to protocol extensions. So the classic problem that people face is, oh, I want to, how do I write a test against something that calls something in, in, in Cocoa Touch? You know, how do I uh, deal with this thing? I'm calling Apple and I want to make sure that I'm calling them correctly. And how do I do that? A lot of times what, the, the correct response is to create a test double or um, a mock to stand in its place and say, I'm not going to actually call the real thing because I don't need to test Apple's code or this uh, li other library's code. I trust it because we're already using it uh, and it's reliable. All I need to do is test that I'm calling it with the right parameters. And that's where uh, test doubles or mocks come into play is they can stand in and say, I'm just going to take your arguments and now you can ask me all about how, how I was called and whether I was called in the right way. And that's where uh, protocol extensions come in really handy is, for example, take NS user defaults. Uh, I can say, well... I'm not going to I'm not going to use the entire API of NS user defaults. I'm just going to test this setter and getter basically of one specific thing. So I can pull those out, essentially copy and paste them from the larger interface into a protocol and say now NS user defaults by default it already honors this protocol because I'm just pulling over a slice of its larger interface. And now anything that provides those methods can be substituted in. 
that's the the big trick for for dealing with doubles in Swift. How do you do TDD with something like UI code? This is this is the question always about unit tests, right? Is how do you make unit tests work for UI? That's a good question. And there are different aspects of UI. One is drawing stuff, and there I don't TDD. Uh, it, drawing is something that I want to visually see, especially when I'm mucking around with auto layout constraints and then like, oh, that's not quite right, that's not quite right. But once I have it, then I lock it down with a snapshot test. And then with a snapshot test in place, even though I haven't TDD'd my way there, I still have the unit test coverage that empowers me to refactor the view drawing code. So there, the other aspects of UI code are, for example, taking events and processing stuff. Events can be easily tested by saying, for example, uh, send a touch up event to this particular button. Boom, you've done it as if your finger had done it. So that's how I TDD most of my view controller stuff is by sending uh, touch events to things. That's interesting. Um, what is a snapshot test? Snapshot test is something that uh, Facebook came up with, and it's a way of taking a view, maybe not the entire uh, view, maybe even just one particular section and saying, let me record wh what this looks like for, uh, and, and save it in a reference file. So it becomes the, the golden master, essentially. Is the, the drawing needs to look like this. And once you save it, then in subsequent tests, it can render the view and say, is this in fact the same result as what I saved earlier? What what tool do you use for doing that? Uh, FB snapshot tests, I think. Let me see. So on GitHub, you can look up iOS snapshot test case. Uh it's really handy. I've done stuff like this by hand before where I'm rendering stuff and saving it off myself. Uh, this library makes it much easier and it also lets you say, well, let's render this on different types of devices. It simulates drawing it, uh, for example, on portrait or landscape or pad and you can save all those files off and it'll just automatically tell you if you've made a breaking change. Once in a while you need to go through and of course make an intentional change at which point you tell the snapshot to re-record itself. Yeah, that's very interesting. I hadn't seen that before. Very, very useful. John, do you think there's anything else we should talk about before we uh, get to it? Get to the picks. Is there anything we've missed? Hmm. Yeah, I guess one thing is that there is a sentiment among many Swift developers that with Swift's strong type checking, I don't need so many unit tests anymore, and I disagree with that sentiment I find that for me type checking is great it ensures that basically you've plugged uh, you know the right things together in a way that their sockets essentially their 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 plugs are in the right places but it doesn't test what you're sending along those plugs and that's where I still find value in writing unit tests to say, am I testing the right thing? So a compiler and a type system can can help. It's certainly not anti-testing, I think. Uh, 
I want all the feedback I can get from as many sources as I can get about the correctness of my code. But it won't help as much with semantics, mostly with syntax. Very clever people can define types that are more picky, but maybe I'm not there yet. I just want to see if I can send the right input through and get the right output. Yeah, the compiler is not checking whether your code is doing what it's supposed to do. So you always have to actually test your code because the compiler is like a orthography checking and testing is like grammar. That's a good analogy. I like that. I do think there's a lot of opportunity to use types and the type checker to, to help catch bugs that, you know, you can't catch with a dynamically typed language or a loose, loosely typed language, but I think you're exactly right that the compiler cannot check everything. And in fact, it cannot check a lot of the very kinds of problems that result in bugs in code. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. All right, well, if there's nothing else, uh, I think we should get to our picks. Let's see, Guy, do you have any picks for us? I have one pick. It's a really cool iOS app. It's called Is It Snappy? And it's an app where you can use your high-speed camera on your iPhone. So you basically use it to measure the time between pressing a button and a thing happening on screen. So the examples the guy gives is like pressing a button on the Nintendo controller and how much time it takes for Mario to jump between you pressing the button. And I think it's really cool. So you can use it to check if your apps are responsive or check the latency of TVs and monitors and stuff. So really nerdy little tool. It's called Is It Snappy? And it's available on the App Store. Cool, I'll have to check that out. I've needed a tool like that a time or two. Yeah, it's really cool. John, do you have any picks for us? I do. I'm essentially going to repeat a pick, but it's a little different. So once again, I'm going to say, wow, app code is is my IDE. Now, it used to be that when I started working in Swift, that app code wasn't up to snuff yet. And... They have come a long way. There are still some places, especially with regard to uh, the boundary uh, between Swift and Objective-C and, and mixing language stuff, where AppCode might still get a little confused and say, well, uh, I don't know what... Uh, I don't know what this particular type is. But most of the time now, I am not using Xcode anymore. It's glorious. And it gives me, in Swift, refactoring ability. Uh, like, uh, so far it's still pretty basic, but it's way more than Xcode to be able to rename stuff, for example. Um, and for TDD in particular, where you start with a code that doesn't even compile yet, you're just expressing an interface to then click on, for example, a method that doesn't exist or a type that doesn't exist and say, make me one of these. And it goes off and creates a, an empty stub. It's fantastic. So that's that's app code uh, and its Swift support is getting better and better. My second pick is, goes back in time. We've talked a lot about refactoring. It, we've mentioned it uh, throughout this podcast, and 
I want to recommend the refactoring book. I think that a lot of people, I hear it around me, wherever I work, uh, talk about refactoring, but they're really talking about rewriting stuff. And refactoring the book describes a number of recipes for very, sometimes small, sometimes big changes to make and the steps to make that change in a safe manner. For example, how do you move a method from one class to another and do that uh, in a safe way? The book will tell you. So uh, whether or not your ID supports something is no excuse. And definitely it requires unit tests to do well. It's an awesome book. Ah, very good. Well, I've got one pick today. Um, I I spent some time in the last few days. I did a Cocoa Heads meeting yesterday where I demonstrated all of my uh, vintage Apple and Next gear. And as part of that, I, I wanted to prepare a little presentation on HyperCard. And I wanted some images to put in HyperCard. HyperCard? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so uh, I was having a pretty hard time figuring out how to save an image I found on the web in um, Mac Paint or picked format that HyperCard could could take on System 6 and um, I remembered that, I don't know 10 plus years ago when you bought a new Mac it came with a bunch of third party software already on it which is something Apple doesn't really do anymore and the I an app I got on my Mac uh, back then was called Graphic Converter so I looked it up and sure enough it's still around, it's been around for I don't know 25 plus years probably now uh, but still updated and as in version 10 now and it just knows how to open and save so many graphics formats including ones you've probably never heard of um, and is also a, a, an image editor um, on its own so it's a pretty useful little program and it allowed me to do what I wanted to do so graphic converter is my pick for this episode alright thanks for coming on John thank you for having me Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.